Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, open our hearts and minds as we listen to your holy word. May these words dwell in our thoughts and be ever-present in our heart. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you for letting me be here with you this morning to give you um, this word. And it's, a, it's an important word, and as you heard it read, I hope your heart was encouraged just by the reading of it, because that's a promise that God gives to us, that through the reading of his word, he does his work in our hearts. You know, the, the story of the early church fascinates me. And I, I think about that as we read the letters here that were written to the early church. And it's this passion and goal of mine to not just understand, but to actually retrace and implement the way that a group of uneducated Jews went from being a sad, scared, sorry, sorry and, and violently persecuted religious group um, to growing into this vast, unstoppable movement that overtook an empire within 300 years without even wielding a sword. That's the story of the early church. And the critical element of the early church was that they put the other pagan cults to shame by the way that they lived out this very passage. The Roman governor, uh, Julian, in the year 360 A.D., he wrote this. For it is disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar, and the impious Galileans, that's his name for Christians, support our poor in addition to their own. You see, the church at the time was meeting their needs, but also the needs of the people around them. So much so that they began to shame the pagan cults for their decadence and their self-centeredness. And people took notice. The Roman emperor is writing about it. And so we look at the book of Acts, 
And we find this picture of unity and community that very honestly seems to be foreign to our American context. However, I think Paul's teaching here is so important in Philippians 2, so essential and valuable to every church, that I really just want to lay it before you this morning. And what I want to do is I want to talk you through and just walk through the passage and really ask three questions and attempt to answer these questions. So the first question is this, what is the prerequisite for forming a Christian community? If you think about this text, that's what it's about. What, what is the prerequisite? What, what has to be there first? What are the roots out of which a Christian community is formed? So that's the first question. Second question, what characterizes a Christian community? How is it described? What's it look like? What's it like? And the third question, what sustains a Christian community? How do we keep this going? How do we actually have the power to live this way? How can we endure the challenges of being brought from various walks of life into a unity in the church? So the first one, what's the prerequisite for Christian community? Paul sets forth several if-then statements in the very beginning of this passage. And he wants to show us that what he's about to call us to naturally flows out of our experience of God in community. So what he's calling us to are these prerequisites. They're prerequisites for what he's calling us to. And I don't think they're hypothetical or rhetorical for Paul. I really believe he wants us to think about these if statements. And there's, in the Greek language, there's actually special ways of making if-then statements. And so sometimes we don't really, it doesn't really come across in English. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rephrase and kind of translate this so that you really get the sense of what Paul's saying here, because I'm going to rephrase them as questions. I think this will help you connect with what he's getting at. Verse 1, would you go ahead and look at it? Have you, church, experienced courage and confidence for living life because of your union with Christ? Think about that. Have you experienced courage and confidence for living your life because of your union with Christ? Have you experienced comfort from the love Jesus has for you? Have you experienced that, that comfort from Jesus' love? Have you experienced the Spirit leading and guiding your life choices? Is that an experience you've had or you have? Have you experienced a stirring of your affections for Jesus and his bride, the church? Does compassion well up in you? For some, if we take these if-then statements seriously, if this has happened, um, for some of us, this is kind of sobering. Um, either you can't think of a time where you've experienced these, or maybe it's just been a long time. And I don't want to minimize that because spiritual warfare is a reality living in a broken world. And life circumstances can be incredibly discouraging to us. And we can get focused on the detailed problems of our lives, and Jesus can feel very distant. And we can feel like we're drifting away from him. Sometimes we can feel useless for ministry. It's hard to see how our gifts can be used, or maybe we don't even have any gifts at all. 
There are times when our love for God is small compared to our love for the things he's created. And sometimes depression settles over us or we just aren't interested in engaging other people. These are realities of living in a broken world. But God's invitation is for us to look up, to set our gaze higher where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he knows exactly what you are experiencing, and he hasn't looked away. But he's actually done something about your condition, about your struggles, and he's promised to unite himself to you in the midst of them. And so you need this. You need this encouragement. You need this experience of God in order to live a Christian life and to follow Christ. The invitation for you is to abide in him, to experience encouragement, comfort, fellowship, compassion. Engaging with God relationally is that prerequisite for actually forming a Christian community because life is hard. And we can't just will our way into a Christian community. There has to actually be an experience of God that's ongoing. That's what forms it. And so Paul then moves right into the characteristics. How do you characterize a Christian community? What's it like? Verse 2, he says, Then make my joy complete. If these things have happened, if you've experienced this, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one spirit of one mind. You know, it's difficult for me to wrap my mind around what Paul is actually calling us to do here. Um, it's a heavy thing to form a Christian community. Be like-minded. Have the same love. One spirit, one mind. I mean, that's it's kind of crazy talk to think about calling a group of people to do this. This is like marriage language almost, right? what married couples are attempting to do. It's like oneness, and that's hard. It's not easy, and this is a very intimate process, relationally speaking. It requires us to allow ourselves to be known and to know others deeply. Paul is calling for oneness of mind and of love, and so what is this idea of oneness about? Well, just briefly, Paul, in his other letters, he has three metaphors for this oneness. A body, a family, and a building. The church community is described with these three metaphors. A body, a family, and a building. And your homework can be to look these up in Scripture and to see, like, what are kind of the core elements of this? Why is he driving these three metaphors for what a Christian community is? But biblically speaking, the core element to oneness is that those united together are distinct. They're distinct, yet inseparable parts of one another, sharing the same goal and vision for life. So how can you call people to such a thing? How can you call us in this room to that? Well, actually, Jesus calls for the same thing. When he mobilizes his church into the world, this is what he says. In John 17, he prays. And Paul's just picking up on what Jesus is, is saying here. He prays to his Father, and listen to his words, his prayer. Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, 
I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Listen to what he prays for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you really did send me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you've loved them even as you loved me. This is an amazing prayer that Jesus has for us to his Father. It's this oneness of mind and this unity of love centered on the glory of God in Christ Jesus that becomes the hallmark of the church. And it will be what witnesses to the world that Jesus really is among us, that he really was from God and that he really is reconciling the world to himself. This is the Christian community. Paul includes a a few more words here to help us practically to understand what oneness looks like. So in verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So this bleeds into very practical behavior of how we conduct ourselves with one another. But it centers on our motivations. I want to help us break, up, break down these words a little bit. Selfish ambition, um, it's one word in Greek, and it's used um, in other places uh, in the ancient world. And so Aristotle, for example, he uses this word to talk about and describe self-seeking pursuit of political office through unfair means. That's how this is used in another place. It's the desire to advance oneself at another's expense. But there's another way this also plays out. In the scriptures, we see that living at the very margins of what you can afford actually is a form of selfish ambition. An example is in Leviticus 19.9, where God commands landowners not to reap all the way out to the edges of their field but they were to leave a margin of their field for the poor to come and take from. See, when a person chooses to live right at their means or above it, they do not have enough to share with those in need in their community. They disadvantage others from the help that God intends for them to have. And you can look at our economy and you can see the impact of selfish ambition And it's in the wake of this widespread and centuries-old American practice, living at or above our means, that government programs have arisen. And that taxes begin to forcibly take from the margins of our wealth to give to those in need. Things have changed. So certainly we are not called to advance our own careers at another's expense, but also we are not called to live lifestyles that leave no room for generosity to others within our budget. 
Both are opposed to looking out for the interests of others. So that's the idea of that word that Paul's capturing. Then he has another one, vain conceit. And the idea of this word is exaggerated self-assessment. It's the delusional idea that you are better than someone else, and it's directly contrasted to the upcoming command that he's about to give, the positive command of what you're supposed to do. And this is what's behind pretty much every ism out there, right? It's thinking that you're better than someone because of superficial characteristics. And that's why a lot of translators use the word vain when they talk about it. So there's those two. But instead, or rather, Paul says, humility. In humility. So what is humility? Well, a lot of people think that humility thinks uh, is, is when you just think less of yourself. Like, you know, yes, prideful people, they, they think much of themselves. But humble people, they're the ones who are, you know, they, they think little of themselves. Well, that's not actually how humility works. Pride doesn't work that way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The prideful person is the self-absorbed person, regardless of the quality of the judgment that they make about themselves. The strong person, their pride leads them to narcissism, right, and arrogance. The weak person, their pride leads them to anxiety and self-loathing. Both are driven by pride. It's the overemphasis and focus on the self. Americans don't have a problem with this. The humble person is the one who experiences what many have called blessed self-forgetfulness. This was championed by Tim Keller, who recently passed. And this is the actual, like, practical exhortation we get here from Paul. In humility, verse 4, consider others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. It's that self-forgetfulness he's calling us to. And here again, he shows us how much he's internalized Jesus' teachings on this by expounding on the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. So if we put all these concepts together, I can give you a summary here of the characteristics of a Christian community. And it's this. It's when you meet the needs of others with the same speed and intensity at which you meet your own. Meeting the needs of others with the same speed and intensity at which you meet your own. Okay. So we've talked about the essence of the Christian community. It's this unity of mind, of spirit, of love. We know the key to unity is humility rather than selfish ambition or vain conceit. And we know now what humility is. So that's it, right? We've, we've got what we need to do. We're all pumped, ready to be the church. Let's close in prayer. No. That's not enough. Because of what we meditated on earlier, because of the realities of living under the fall, the hardness of our own hearts, our years or decades even of living self-focused lives and watching other image bearers of God live self-focused lives in front of us. Simply knowing all these things is not enough. 
in order to constantly and consistently live out what Paul is calling us to, we have to banish selfish ambition and vain conceit from our hearts and be humbled by the power of the Holy Spirit applying the gospel to our hearts over a long period of time, a whole lifetime, in fact. And Paul knows it. So what, what do we need? How are we going to get the power to sustain a Christian community? How are we going to hold to unity in the bond of peace? Well, in order to do that, we need to regularly bring to mind the God who lost peace, who lost unity with his beloved, who lost his very life for you and me. Look at verse 5. Your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. You see, your God did not have vain conceit as he looked upon you. He did not hold on to his position, his position as king of the universe for his selfish ambition. Your God humbled himself. He considered your needs, not thinking of how humiliating it would be for him. It didn't matter. You were in need. He lowered himself to be a servant. And if that weren't enough, he didn't even hold himself back from suffering and death and abandonment as he cried out, dying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the only way to come get you. It was the only way to rescue you from your own selfish, prideful, helpless pit. He chose to carry your iniquities, your crookedness, your depression, your loneliness. He took it all onto himself and he was rejected by his beloved in that moment so that you and I could be accepted and adopted in as his beloved children. So that we could be loved, we could be esteemed, we could be cherished. You and I are the joy that was set before him, that he despised the shame of the cross and endured it. So the reality is beholding is becoming. As you behold your self-giving God, you will become more self-giving yourself. As you behold your humble God, you will grow more humble. You see, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what we see next in verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how you can let go of selfish ambition and vain conceit. God is the one exalting you with Christ, so you don't need to do that anymore. This is how you humble yourself to care for the needs of others. Because you have 
confidence that Jesus was willing to give up everything, all the riches, all, even his life, to care for you and love you. So of course, of course he's going to provide everything you need out of his riches and glory. When you see him humbling himself for you, you will see him exalting you with him. And you'll also readily humble yourself for others. So here's the application. This is our role. This is our takeaway. Make it your singular ambition every single day, your goal, to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Like Mary in Luke 10, you need to seek encouragement and comfort from your union with Christ and experience this connection with the Spirit by slowing down your life, saying no to something good, and just sitting at his feet and spending time with him. That's the picture we get between Mary and Martha. Martha's busy. She's doing many things for Jesus. But one thing is necessary, and Mary chose it. It's to sit at his feet. And that will lead you to humble yourself for the interests of others, whether it's your spouse or your kids or your extended family or coworkers or strangers even, especially those who seem like your enemies. Humble yourself into Christ's mindset. So therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit of one mind. And friends, it will be through this. It will be through others witnessing your unity of mind, of spirit, and of love that the seacoast will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he really is with us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, we live in the midst of a broken world. We're so easily distracted by things around us. It's easy to be deceived into believing lies about who you are and who we are. It's easy to be discouraged by our circumstances. And it's easy to feel the distance growing between us and between you and us. But Lord, you have stepped into this world. You have not been distant from us. You've stepped into our brokenness, into our circumstances. You've suffered with us and for us. And so I pray that today as we go from here, that your love, that your desire to humble yourself for us would fill our hearts, would satisfy us, would bring us to a place of confidence in how much you care about us. And that would lead us to not be afraid of anything, but to step into the hard realities of our lives and of others and to look out, not just for our own interests, but those around us, just as you did for us. Lord, make us a people. Make us a people who love well. We need you. 
We need more of your spirit to give us wisdom and the ability to do this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.